Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Blair Levin to the show. Blair Levin serves as a senior non-resident fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Project at the Brookings Institution. He is also the policy advisor to New Street Research, an international equity research firm. Blair began his career practicing law in North Carolina. He then served as chief of staff to the FCC chairman, Reed Hunt, from 1993 to 1997, was a policy analyst for the equity research team that Leg Mason and Stifle Nicholas co-led the Obama Technology and Government Innovation Transition Team, and returned to government to direct the writing of the United States National Broadband Plan from 2009 to 2010. Blair, how are you doing today? Doing great. It's a beautiful day here in D.C. Up in D.C., in the middle of all the action, huh? <laughs> Let's hope not. Um, <laughs> we're in the middle of a lot of tweets and, and, and a lot of people yelling at each other, but it so far does not qualify as action. There, there certainly are some improvements, but um, we'll, we'll see what happens over the next few months. Well, you had an exciting start to the year, I'd say. Uh, it, it was. Uh, <laughs> it, it certainly, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure what you're referring to, but I'm just going to say that it was great to have a government, and anyone who knows my background knows uh, I, I'm, I'm a Democrat. I served in both the Clinton and Obama administrations. It was great to basically have a White House that was interested in trying to make the country a better place to people for people to grow and thrive. So it's a good place to start. It is. And let's dig into your background a little bit. You know, let's start with, if you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm that interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll just make two observations. Um, I grew up in California. I uh, went back east for college and law school, but ended up in North Carolina with my then girlfriend, now wife, of many years uh, when she was going to medical school. Uh, and when I came to Washington, there were a lot of people who assumed I was actually from North Carolina, which by then I had managed to convince people that I was, uh, because it turns out in Washington, it's a lot better to be from North Carolina than from California, and a lot <laughs> better for people to think you went to UNC than some Ivy League school. Um, so I was perfectly fine. <laughs> um, but, but probably uh, the thing that most people don't know about me that in, in a bizarre way formed me was after college, I worked for a year, got a couple thousand bucks together and uh, did the backpack trail through Latin America for nine months. And while there, I learned that uh, the most fun places to be were wherever there was a celebration in which there was a bullfight and <laughs> jumping into the ring a few times. And there's something about being in a ring with a bull. And I, yeah, I, I wasn't, these were not large bulls, but there's something about it where you kind of go, why am I here? And, and, you know, when you're growing up, you're, you're there because your parents told you to go to school or your teacher said to do this or whatever. But like when you're out there in the ring asking yourself, why am I here? <laughs> it, it's a very valuable lesson for the rest of your life. 
well, valuable and also quite existential too. Yeah. Why am Why am I here? Right. Well, let's start with why you're here. You're here because I was reading an article recently regarding the digital divide and Kamala Harris being tapped to lead that. And there's a quote from you in this article, and I'm going to read it here. Broadband is going to be a critical part of our infrastructure of the future. Can you elaborate on that quote? Sure. If, if I could redo the quote, I would say broadband is the infrastructure of infrastructure. That is to say, what, what really is infrastructure? Infrastructure is a common good that all of us share to a certain extent that you wouldn't have it. You know, you don't build a road for an individual. Uh, you don't build a bridge for one person to drive over. You don't build a broadband network for just one person to use it. It's something It is a common asset. Let's not get into the question of whether it should be publicly or privately owned and how it's regulated. But it's a common asset that we all use that enables us to do lots of other stuff. Uh, it's an empowering um, technology. It may not be the ultimate thing we do, but it's the thing that enables us to do the thing we really want to be doing. And when we think about infrastructure today, like roads, the roads have to be smart. You want to have sensors in those. And those sensors want to be able to communicate data to some place so that your traffic light uh, works more effectively. Uh, you, when we when we talk about water pipes, which I think the president has wisely said we need to make sure we don't have lead in them, you also want to have sensors on those that make sure we know when they're leaking and, and make sure about other things. So this collection of data, analyzing data, all of which is over the broadband network, that you know, net, broadband now needs to be a piece of every infrastructure. Uh, and so it is kind of underlying everything that we do. And I think particularly in this COVID year where we saw so much of what we do be transformed by the fact that we could now do it over broadband, I, th I think there's a greater appreciation for the fact that um, it is something which we need everyone to have. So the infrastructure of infrastructure, you know, the idea of making roads and pipes, et cetera, smart through sensors, the public good, the public benefit, um, you know, commerce, obviously, but this idea of making broadband regularly or easily available to all citizenry. You've been working on this since 2010, I believe, maybe even earlier. Can you share why you think we're not there yet? What happened in, in you know in the last 10, 11 years? So actually, you know, I was chief of staff at the FCC back in the mid 90s uh, when the Internet was just getting started. And it was, I think, in 96 or 97 when we were still using dial-up, that the then head of the National Telecommunications Information Agency, sometimes known as NTIA, uh, the head of it was a guy named Larry Irving. And Larry coined the phrase digital divide to reflect the fact that there were a lot of dial-up options uh, in some parts of the country, but not in others. And there was definitely a racial component to it. There was also an income component to it. There was some education component to it. Um, since then, the technical definition of the digital divide has changed. And, and we worked on some things during the Clinton administration to try to foresee what that digital divide might be and try to prevent it from happening. And in some ways, we said we were successful, most notably, I think, with something called the E-Rate program, which has successfully put uh, fiber in pretty much all the classrooms of America. Um, you know, if we hadn't done that, we would have had wealthy schools have access to internet and poor schools not, but but we didn't succeed everywhere. And whereas the technical definition has shifted a lot, the fundamental definition has not. And for me, it's do individuals have 
the ability to fully participate in the economic, civic, and social lives of their communities. Back in 96, it, it wasn't essential, but we could see where it was going to go. Now, as we saw in this last COVID year, it is essential. You cannot fully participate uh, without broadband. Going to your question, so then, then I came back to government in 2009 and 10 to do something called the National Broadband Plan, which fundamentally had three big ideas. Let's get networks everywhere. Let's get everybody on them. And let's utilize the networks to uh, better deliver essential services like healthcare, education, workforce development, public safety, et cetera. We have made progress in the last 10 years. We didn't make enough progress. Why we didn't make enough progress? Well, part of it was that we did not have, after the initial two years of the Obama administration, we didn't really have a Congress that did much. Now, the only thing Congress did on telecommunications was to do a couple of things that actually we had recommended in the National Broadband Plan relating to Spectrum and relating to a public safety network called FirstNet. But there was not a political consensus at that time that we really needed to get networks everywhere, that we really needed to get everybody on, and that it was a, should be a priority to improve how we utilize those networks. I think COVID has changed the political capital behind those ideas. And for anything to get done, you have to have a certain amount of political capital. But, you know, these things are, they're, they're not easy to do. They certainly require more financial resources than uh, the government of the last decade was willing to put into them. But, you know, we also needed a real commitment at all levels of the federal government and the state governments and the local governments to understand, the, the, both understands and wants to act on um, how, how we fundamentally operate in a digital society. Where do you think we are on that arc of political consensus? You mentioned federal, state, local. Um, where do you think we sit right now from a progress perspective? So I think that each realm of government has a different vision and, uh, and different resources. I'm not saying opposing, I'm just saying different. One of the interesting things that happened uh, in the COVID year was Congress passed laws giving large amounts of money to state and local governments and a number of those governments used them to improve the connectivity of their citizens. You know, you look at the state of Alabama, for example, they took a bunch of CARES Act money and used it to try to connect as many of their school kids as they could. Even though it is a red state uh, of Republicans, you had a governor who understood that they had to deliver education to all their kids. And the only way to do it uh, during the COVID year was through digital access. And, and so you saw lots of experimentation, lots of people doing various things. And you've now seen this Congress and the American uh, Rescue Plan uh, devote lots of money, $10 billion, to give to states to improve broadband access. That's far more than what happened during the Obama year, uh, which was about, it was about seven in the Recovery Act there. Plus, they passed $350 billion to go to state and local governments uh, with broadband being an eligible use, so there's more money there. And of course, the big test will be in the uh, in upcoming infrastructure bill. President has proposed $100 billion. The Republicans have proposed $65 billion for broadband. That's actually one of the narrower gaps between Democrats and Republicans uh, in terms of the differences and what they want to spend in the infrastructure. Um, so we'll see. I would say uh, a, a couple of things. Number one, the federal government is the only entity capable of essentially providing investments into our future. So it's really important that the federal government put more money uh, into solving the problems of getting networks everywhere and getting everybody on. 
I think the states are very good at certain kinds of planning things. They are very good at like, you know, building roads and, and, and having broadband in those roads. And there, there are a variety of things that states can do. But local governments play a really critical role in terms of helping people with, with things like digital literacy, uh, with things. One of, uh, one of the ideas that I really like is to have digital navigators helping certain under-adopting community, whether it be senior citizens, whether it be people of different languages, whether it be people of low income who don't have access to a lot of digital tools, people from those communities helping others in those communities learn how to deal with uh, digital technologies. That's really going to be done at the local level. So we need a kind of an organized approach in which each level of government does what they do best to make sure that we get everybody on. Do you think the $100 billion will get us there? I think it's a critical start if it's used correctly. I should note that back in last in March of 2020, uh, which I think is a month that all of us will remember, um, we were supposed to have a 10th anniversary of the National Broadband Plan, at which we would all discuss how things had changed and call for another plan. The single most important sentence in the National Broadband Plan was the beginning of the implementation chapter, which said, this plan is in beta and always will be. And that really is the right idea. It's, it's, it's not a popular idea in government because political leaders want to say, we solved this problem forever. The truth is you never solve a problem forever. And so uh, we wanted the plan to spark a lot of other activities. That would I would regard that as something we did not do well, because whereas there were certain things that came out of the plan that worked well, the constant review, course corrections, improvements that we were hoping to inspire in the federal government didn't really happen over those 10 years. Well, what happened instead was, of course, the conference got canceled, but suddenly lots of other people throughout the country started saying, oh my God, we need networks everywhere. We need everybody on. We need to improve how we deliver these essential services uh, using the network. And that caused a bunch of us to say, we, we should really should rewrite the national broadband plan ourselves. Um, and then, so we started thinking about how to rewrite it in light of COVID. We also wanted to make sure that we wrote it before the new administration began. So it wouldn't be like the Obama administration where the money was basically all spent before we got to develop our own plan. And then also George Floyd happened. And there was suddenly a lot of consciousness about those things which are a function of what you might think of as either historic or systemic racism. And so we, we joined forces with the National Urban League and produced something called the Lewis Latimer Plan. Lewis Latimer being an African-American son of slaves back in the 1880s and 90s, worked with Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Edison on some of the most important uh, discoveries of, of his time and things which were equivalent in a way uh, to the internet of the time in terms of transitioning how people really live their lives. In any event, we, we wrote a plan that is similar to the National Broadband Plan, but certainly updated has a lot of different kinds of recommendations. And it's it's in that context that I would say the 100 billion can get us that to that first goal of getting networks everywhere. It cannot quite get us to the second goal, which is getting everybody on, because that requires an, a long-term commitment to having low-income support, just as we do with Medicaid, just as we do with SNAP, which is the food assistance program, just as we do, there, there are people who are at an income level where it's always going to be tough. And yet we benefit if they're online. And so we're going to need some kind of low-income support 
uh, as we traditionally had with telephone service, but we need to upgrade it for broadband. I don't think the $100 billion does what's really important in the federal government uh, and, by the way, state and local governments to reorganize how they deliver services uh, so that we imp actually improve those services online. We can talk more about that. And then a final thing is, I think, uh, this was very important to the National Urban League, uh, and it's the right thing, which is how do we make sure that the business opportunities that are created by a new technology are distributed among everyone, you know, so that we have a more equitable and inclusive society. So the 100 billion does some things, but it doesn't do everything. Some things require money, some things don't. Sometimes things require one-term capital infusions, some things require ongoing operating expenses. So um, the infrastructure bill is critically important, but it's not the end of the story. Let's go to that question of how do we ensure business opportunities get distributed equally? What are some of the ideas around that? It's a it's a really great question, and it's something we didn't address in the first national in, in the national broadband plan. And it's something which I'm going to start by saying something which will sound obvious, but you know we honor it in its breach, which is number one, we really need more information, and we need consistent updating of the information. That is to say, we need to know where the opportunities are. We need to have better data on kind of what segments are growing. And we need this not just from a business opportunity perspective, but also from a workforce perspective. So the data gathering, the, the, the information economy ought to be giving us much better information uh, about how to do that and where the targets are. Then there are a variety of different things that can be done at the government level, whether through contracting or through kind of specific grants or through training program support, for example, for the historic black colleges and universities and, and things like that, different kinds of finance mechanisms. And then there's the kinds of stuff that can be done in the um, in the public, in the private sector, where I think relative to where we were 10, 20 years ago, and particularly in response to George Floyd, there there is a greater awareness of the need that we need to bring everyone as along, everyone along. As the former Senator Paul Wellstone kind of famously said, we all do better when we all do better. But it is uh, large corporations in particular um, have to make sure that we're all doing better. And that's a really tough thing to do. I think it's more, frankly, about private sector activity than about public policy. Uh, and my expertise is more in public policy. But I think it's really important that we have a consciousness of it, that we collect information about it, that we have targeted government programs, uh, and that we very much keep what you might think of as the pressure on. Uh, private entities to understand their role in making sure that all have opportunity. Now, this question might not go anywhere, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Earlier, you spoke about getting everyone on, assuming everyone onto broadband. You also mentioned COVID in the last year, which really put a spotlight on the digital divide. We got notices from our local middle school here, something along the lines of, if you don't have internet access at home, take children to, and they named a few restaurants, you can take them to the parking lot, um, somehow expecting children sitting in cars to log on to Wi-Fi at restaurants and study. What role does the Department of Education, if any, play in this digital divide? So the fundamental problem that the school district in your area was responding to is that, you know, order of magnitude, there are about 30% of people who live in areas where broadband exists um, don't have it in their homes. The numbers vary by community. 
In some communities, it's 50%. In some communities, it's 5%. But the problem isn't fundamentally an educational problem. It's an in-home broadband problem. The Department of Education has limited resources to address that. The, the federal government program that was supposed to address it is a program called Lifeline. Lifeline was a program developed during the Reagan administration, right after the breakup of AT&T, in which the Federal Communications Commission collects certain fees on telecommunications providers and distributes them to low-income persons to make sure that everyone could basically connect the dial tone. Now, that's a program that obviously needs to be upgraded uh, for the broadband era. We, we made some recommendations, some of which the FCC did, that improved the situation. But at the end of the day, there are way too many kids, such as the kids your school system was, was, was dealing with, that, that we, need, we need to do more. And there are certain proposals, both in the plan that we developed and circulating in Congress, to essentially give people what you might think of as a benefit. And so if you're below a certain income level, you essentially get a voucher for the, the purchase of in-home broadband and a device and, and things like that. I should just note the Department of Education uh, does play a role in a number of other things. I, I think the, the big challenge is how do we adjust education in a world where, you know, so many things are done digitally? There are tremendous opportunities to improve education, and it's kind of painful for people like me who had such high hopes for the internet in the mid-90s to see that it hasn't shrunk the education gaps, it has actually widened them. But if you think about it, you know, the opportunity to learn at your own pace, the opportunity for personalized education, the opportunity for someone who's not going to a great school to nonetheless get, get great teachers who are teaching in a different manner, who are teaching online, the opportunity, one of the, one of the things we mentioned uh, in the, the Latimer plan is we're, we're about to experience what you might think of as a COVID slide. Every summer, there's something called the summer slide where kids leave third grade, reading at third grade levels. And when they return in the fall, they're lead, reading, reading at second grade plus levels, but they've kind of fallen off. Well, we have a COVID slide that's going to happen, that's happening, where kids who in March of 2020 were reading at a third grade level and now maybe reading at a first grade level. That's a horrible thing for our country. People project, sociologists project that you can predict very accurately the number of prison beds you're going to need 11 years from now by just looking at the fourth grade reading score. And if they're really low, you're going to need a lot more beds. Well, they're going to be really low, but we don't have to just say, oh, well, can't do anything about that. You know, if we got everybody on line, we could have personal tutoring with, you know, People in New York could tutor kids in Arizona or whatever, right? I mean, the, there, there are plenty of people who would like to contribute their time to help second, third, fourth, fifth graders learn how to read better, learn how to do math better. We could have a, really a national surge of people helping people. The internet enables that, but we don't use it effectively for that purpose. And so the Department of Education, you know, can really start rethinking uh, kind of the fundamental ways we deliver education. You know, as you were speaking, and I'm going to start talking while I'm thinking this through, and this might not be a popular opinion, but I almost feel like there should be some kind of mandatory online education. And the reason I'm saying that is that I've been in and around technology for the last 10, 12 years. I've had my own, my own startup, so I know I know the world very well. I have young children myself, and I know that my children you know, their first inclination if they get on the iPad or an iPhone is not education. 
It's something else. It's a it's a competing interest for their attention. And I feel like unless there's an intentional movement to bring children up to speed, a mandatory movement, if you will, sometimes to bring education to the children which in which they have to participate, you know, whether it's a summit, whether it's the summer slide or COVID slide, they're both inevitable. Yeah, look, I, <laughs> in a year in which somehow we in the United States managed to turn the simplest thing, the wearing of masks that would protect everybody uh, into a political cultural war, uh, it's difficult for me to see how we could mandate um, online education. Having said that, you're absolutely right that, um, you know, there are just some really big facts we all know. We know that in the years to come, uh, your kid's generation, I guess I should say my, my kid's generation, but I'm really thinking of my, grand, my two grandkids, they're going to have many different jobs and they're going to have to constantly retrain and that most of that retraining is going to be online. We know that. So why don't we get people started uh, and making sure that, that, you know, there's plenty of opportunities for digital literacy uh, and digital readiness. Uh, we, we, we know that when we, when, we, when we look at the classroom of today, it's not really going to make sense for a teacher to stand up <laughs> in front of 30 kids and try to explain the world to them. We know that so much of the act that it, we're going to move the teachers from being the, sta- the sage on the stage to more of a counselor, more of a, somebody who helps people. And so, you know, people kind of work at their own pace to get there. You know, Saul Khan of Khan Academy, which is a fantastic organization, talks about, I think, a really important thing that we haven't incorporated in education. He says, you know, when you build a house, you do, you, you kind of, you dig it out, you build the foundation. You're not allowed to build on top of that foundation until you, until the foundation works. Not, not 80% good, but 100% good, because otherwise the foundation is weak. And then you put the frame in. And then it gets inspected again. And you're not allowed to go to the next phase until you get that, that, that framing right. And then you do the next part. And you're, you have to get each part kind of 100%. Well, the Internet enables people to have reading education where you get it right before you go to the next stage. And, and math education where you get it right before you get to the next stage. That's the way things should operate. But that's not the way they operate in education People move on before they truly understand. And I would just like to add to that, if the education system can figure out a way to just add gamification to the system, I think they'd get a move along much faster. Uh, that's almost certainly true. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that's what I mean about the Department of Education can have a tremendous influence in how we make this transition. There's no doubt that 20 years from now, of course, that'll be happening all over the place. But it would be great to see America lead in that. And it would be great to see the young generation in school today that had a very problematic year last year be on the cutting edge of improving their understanding of things by creating that kind of gamification and uh, other ways that, that really attract attention. And, and, and here, too, and I would just I would say this would apply to almost every service. The, the great thing about the digital platform is the platform itself learns. So if kids improve their reading comprehension using game A, but don't do so much using game B, we know to use game A. But if certain kinds of people actually learn better with game C, they get game C. So, you know, the, the kind of the data, the constant improvement, um, these can be tremendous things for our society. We haven't done them yet. Hopefully we'll do them in the years to come. Hopefully so. So I'm going to switch gears here and get to the 
why behind, you know, obviously you care about this digital divide. You've been involved for a long, long time. What's your why? What drives you? What keeps you motivated? What keeps your hopes up? Uh, you know, there, there's uh, one of my personal heroes was uh, a rabbi in England, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, who unfortunately passed away way too young um, last year. But one of the things he said is you discover uh, your life's purpose where what you want to do meets uh, what needs to be done. And there are certain things I'm good at. Um, you know, like people say, follow your dreams. I'm not sure that's really <laughs> good advice. I, I do think understanding what you're good at is a good starting place. But sometimes what you're good at d doesn't create opportunities for you to do what you really want to do. And for me, uh, the kind of analytical skills that I bring to bear, the kind of background in politics and policy and organizations and things, they've come together at a few points in my life, not every day of my life, but a few points. And one of them has been on this fundamental mission of, because I worked on these issues back in the 90s, I worked on it, you know, throughout, uh, I never in a way stopped working on it, uh, but I've had two stints in government that really allowed me to uh, try to drive the change that I thought would be valuable and really help improve people's lives. I mean, it's not any more complicated than that. The internet, um, I think, has disappointed a lot of us in terms of how it's created divisions and it's created misinformation. And um, I wish I knew better how to solve that, but I don't. The digital divide issue is one I think I understand better. So it's one that I've been focused on. So it's that combination of what your skill set is, what your personal networks is, but also what you think is most important at this particular time that you could uh, do something. I would just note climate change is far more important than anything I'm working on. But I, I'm not an engineer. The, the politics of it is very different. So uh, at, at a certain point, you have to realize kind of the embedded value that you've created for your life because of what you understand how to do. You want, you want to use that to drive as important a change and important as improvement as you possibly can. You know, you mentioned Jonathan Sachs, and um, I actually heard him on an interview, I think it was last year or the year before, and he kind of gave his story about how he got involved in his movement. So I really appreciate you bringing him up. Yeah, wonderful man. Absolutely. So yeah. let's move into the future. Magic Wand, let's say the government can provide all the funds necessary. It's 2030. Looking back, where do you see, how would you like to see maybe a headline read about perhaps what was once the digital divide? Uh, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me. Let, let me throw out some headlines that I would love to see in the year 2030. 97% of American fourth graders reading at sixth grade level. That would be a great headline. That is a that's a that is much more achievable than you know one might have thought putting a man on the moon was in 1960. Um, eight years later, we put a man on the moon, or nine years later. But um, you know, I don't know that anyone has articulated the goal of having 90% of American kids in fourth grade read at a sixth grade level. But if you think about it, that's an achievable goal. Here's another goal: preventative medicine cuts the cost of healthcare by 30%. Uh, in the year 2030. The ability to do telehealth really should enable us to do preventative health and uh, much more. And, you know, everybody knows, or everybody who studies it knows, that preventative health can actually improve the health outcomes while also lowering the cost. It's just that we don't do it, and we don't do it for lots of different reasons. One of those reasons is it's so problematic to make an appointment to see a doctor, to go visit with the doctor, to sit in the waiting room, 
and you know, and then to go back to work. For people in the information world like me, if I have to go see a doctor, I just go see a doctor's, you know, and it doesn't affect my income at all. But if you are, you know, working at say cleaning a building um, as we go back to work, and you're working nine to five, and then you're picking up kids and you're feeding them dinner, and you know they're you're so you're working and and in the morning you're doing breakfast for them. You're really working from seven in the morning till nine at night, right? It's not a you know you might be exhausted, but if you really need to see a doctor, the ability to see a doctor at nine fifteen in the evening by phone is an enormous benefit, and that that's the kind of thing that is now possible. Obviously, there are certain things you need to physically see the doctor for, but there are a lot of things you don't. And telehealth has been a huge improvement. By the way, I, I think one of the things that came out of COVID was the use of telehealth increased, you know, depending on what numbers you want to look at, no less than 50%. But, you know, there are some extraordinary numbers in terms of how we started using it uh, almost overnight. It was not a technology change. It was just a change in how we thought about doing it. So I'd love to see a headline about how digital health essentially lowered costs while simultaneously improving outcomes. I'd like to see a headline that uh, somehow captures how people retrain and get jobs much faster because there are all kinds of applications that enable them to do it. I'd love there to be a program where someone just became unemployed. You, you put in some metrics about your background, you take some tests, and it says to you, in your area, uh, here are the jobs that we project would happen. Given your background, you could apply for these jobs now. On the other hand, given your background and your skills, if you take these training programs, here are some even better jobs for which there are both openings today and we project even more openings tomorrow. You know, for high-end folks, there are applications like that. I'd like to see that universally available and universally used. So when we, when you ask me what the headlines are, I'm going to assume that we've solved the problem of getting networks everywhere in the country, because that's actually very, that's really solvable. And by the way, a lot of political capital behind is behind it, because Democrats believe it as a matter of philosophy that the federal government should act in that way. Republicans believe it because they represent a lot of rural areas, and they certainly understand that those rural areas need broadband to, to thrive. Uh, I'm going to assume, though this is a more problematic assumption, that we're going to find a way to make affordability a non-issue. That is to say, we're going to help low-income people uh, get on the internet. And so I'm really going to be, what I'm hoping for 10 years from now is massive improvements in how we utilize it to create a more equitable, inclusive, better functioning society. Well, I look forward to reading all the headlines you mentioned. You mentioned healthcare. And for me, and I know it's not directly, but in my mind, Healthcare is also an infrastructure problem. I mean, if you've got a great infrastructure but no people to use it, what's the use? And I often joke about healthcare. You know, we take our cars in for oil changes every 3,000-ish miles, so three, four times a year. We take our bodies in once a year when we can. No, it's, it's, it's a really good point. Look, there are a lot of companies working on this. Apple's working on it. Google's working on it. Amazon's working on it. Lots of different folks are working on it. But at the end of the day, uh, the federal government's got to play a really key role in making sure everybody has access to the kinds of improvements. But healthcare is not something which should be done once a year to go see your doctor. It's something which, you know, we should all be taking care of ourselves every day. And I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said, especially 
preventative. If we can yeah. nip the problems in the bud before the healthcare system gets overburdened with them, why not? Yeah, absolutely. So just briefly, can you go over New Street Research, what the organization does and your role at the organization? Yeah. So, you know, I do a couple of different things. They all are at the intersection of capital markets, uh, public policy, broadband, using a lot of the same skill sets. Uh, I'm, for example, I'm, I'm at the Brookings Institution where I, I write and I help people there think about broadband, how it fits into other policies. But I support myself kind of by doing some other things, helping some small companies, but primarily uh, working with New Street, which is an equity research shop, uh, which means it provides research to institutional investors, not individual investors, about major trends and, and providing financial analysis for those investors in the telecommunications and technology space. It's a relatively small firm compared to some of the giants on Wall Street, but it's very focused uh, on those two sectors. And we have people all around the world watching those trends. And I follow the public policy trends in Washington, D.C. So that, for example, um, the infrastructure bill, which uh, I've written some things on Brookings that you might read as advocacy, but in my wearing my New Street hat, I don't advocate, but rather I try to describe to investors, here's what Congress is thinking, here's what the White House is thinking, here's what the FCC is thinking. And if you put those things together, you come up with a policy, might be good for these stocks, might be bad for these stocks. So that's what I do. So I'm not looking for financial advice for myself or <laughs> listeners, but the tagline on the website is built to deliver uncommon insight. Yeah. So without advocating, like you said, what is some uncommon insight that you've come across recently? Oh, you know, I thought the the, the thing that's most kind of interesting and newsworthy about New Street Research uh, was my colleague and, and good friend, Jonathan Chaplin, who's the principal analyst in the United States, um, basically for the last number of months, has been saying, uh, has been talking about AT&T and saying they are walking off the wireless playing field because they're not making the necessary investments in wireless. They have a strategy that's really all about vertical integration with media. It will not work. And uh, as a result, they're not only going to fail in media, uh, they're going to fail in the business where they could actually do much better, which is wireless and also by investing in fiber. And indeed, a couple months ago, there was a, uh, an editorial in the Wall Street Journal by a guy named Holman Jenkins, which talked about Jonathan's work. And uh, when I talked to Jonathan that day, he said, I'm not sure anyone at AT&T will ever talk to me again. Uh, well, the funny thing is, we started this week with AT&T essentially adopting Jonathan's advice and selling their media assets. So I would say the, the, the big uncommon thing that Jonathan understood and he wasn't alone, but he was pretty more. He was more insightful and louder about it than a lot of people on Wall Street, because AT and T is a big company. Is that the the theory of the AT and T Time Warner Entertainment deal uh, was a flawed theory from a from a business perspective? It was bound to fail, and I think that's uh, that's right. You know, I would say in in my own work, you know, an, an example would be Friday. There was an article. In a, mag, in a periodic or a, an online daily called Axios, which talked about how the White House or certain people in the White House are thinking that broadband prices 
maybe need to be regulated. And I wrote a piece for Wall Street investors saying, well, they may think that, but it's not going to happen. And here are the various reasons why it won't happen. So that's the kind of stuff I do. I appreciate you sharing that. And staying on the topic of advice leads me to my last question. If you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, and it could be professional or personal, what would it be? Ah, uh, gosh. Uh, I, I <laughs> We have three kids. Uh, we have two grandkids. Uh, I love them all dearly. Uh, it's really a lot of fun to watch your kids become parents. They become much nicer to you. They become more grateful to you, more appreciative of what you did, and also appreciate the difficulty of parenting. And one of the things I've, I've noticed, and I, in some ways I care more about this than the digital divide, I suppose, is there are certain things that you want your kids to be, and you just realize that the way we're made makes it really difficult. Like you, you really want your kids to be resilient, and yet as a parent, you don't want them to ever suffer harm. And so you you don't give them the opportunities to rise up after a harm. You try to prevent harm all over. And that's that's a problematic thing. You, you know, I think the happiest kids are kids who have a great sense of gratitude. And that's great. But, you know, the instinct of parents is to try to uh, give kids things and that gives them a sense of entitlement. And so that's that's a problem. You really want to help your kids. But one thing you should want to help them to do is to have a sense of agency that they're in charge. You know, we started by talking about my time in the bullring. And my, I had wonderful parents, by the way. But I think that part of what I got out of that experience was my own sense of agency. I chose to be here. It may have been a good choice or a bad choice. Uh, it was certainly at certain points a questionable choice. But I did it. And in a lot of decisions that have proven to be best for me are decisions that I very, very much understood why I made those decisions and, and, and the ownership I have of that decision. And I think it's really important to give kids that sense of agency. So the, the, the contradictions of being a parent are something which I, I, I think about a lot. I guess on a more professional level, I would say, you know, the thing that I've really been struck by is how Washington is a place where people like to use the I word a lot. I try not to. Everything that I've done that has actually mattered, been important, was really done as part of a very significant team effort. I think of my own experience in Washington, and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that this this is really true for, for lots of people in non-political situations. You know, the other team kicks the ball to your team. Someone runs it from the goal line to about the 20. Then a different team comes on, and there are certain people like me who are kind of alignment, and we, we try to march the ball down the field, and we maybe get it to the 20. And then the quarterback throws a pass to someone who catches the ball, scores a touchdown, and both the quarterback and the end actually feel like they ran the ball back mm -hmm. all 100 yards. They scored the touchdown. Washington is full of people who think they did a thing. And my experience is you move the ball down the field. But the real lesson out of that is choose your teammates wisely. They're the most important influence on how you feel in the course of the day. They're the most important influence on what you can accomplish. And I've been really lucky, particularly in my two times in government, uh, to have great teammates. I've got great teammates at New Street now. Really love the folks at Brookings as well. Choose the team uh, <laughs> because that's who you're going to be playing a lot with. And that's what's really going to matter in your life. You know, as the father of three young children, I really appreciate the parenting advice. I recently heard something that really struck home for me. And it said something along the lines of prepare the kid for the road, not the road for the kid. And um, that really hit home with me. And uh, it's, a, it's a great line and it's a really valuable lesson. There's a wonderful book. I think it's called 
uh, you know, about raising kids called the carpenter and the gardener, with the metaphor being that, you know, carpenters are very precise and they are they're trying to build something that's precise, whereas the gardener is trying to create an environment in which the thing can grow itself. Parenting is a lot more like gardening. I'll be sure to look it up. And I think a great place to leave is choose your teammates wisely. Blair, thank you so much for your time today. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you so much, Raj. It's been a great pleasure talking. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.